everyone. Welcome to episode 201 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Cress. And good luck, everybody, because we have the giggles already, and we were just getting started. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, the first thing we want to talk about is that we were so excited about episode 200 and all of the fun guests we had for you, we forgot to talk about our giveaway Right. Every 10th episode, we do a giveaway, and we have four fantastic books that will be going to one newsletter subscriber. So if you're not a newsletter subscriber, you can sign up over on our website. And if you are, you don't have to do anything other than cross your fingers. Right. And I'm just going to quickly tell you what the stack of four books is. Last Seen in Havana by Teresa Page. A World of Curiosities by Louise Penny, Mother Country by Jacinda Townsend, and The Refusal Camp by James R. Ben. Good luck, everybody. And, you know, we only send one email, and it's our newsletter, and it usually arrives in your inbox the last day of the month. The other giveaway we have is for our Patreon patrons. If you are a patron of the Book Cougars podcast, the book that we're giving away this month is called The Komagawa Food Detectives by Hisashi Kashiwai, and it's translated by Jesse Kirkwood. Both of these giveaways are going to take place on February 15th. So if you'd like to become a patron, do so by February 15th. If you want to be entered to win the stack of four, join our newsletter by the 15th of February. All right. Good luck, everyone. So many books. Okay. Okay. So we also have some thank yous to give. We would like to thank Cecily, Kirsten, Ellen, and Donnell for becoming new patrons over on Patreon. Thank you so much. We also have a couple people who just sent us individual donations. Yes. Big thanks to Alicia and Anna. We appreciate your generosity so much. All right. We also have a follow-up from episode 200. There was one point where Emily was talking about a biblio adventure where she saw Ann Patchett in conversation with Elizabeth McCracken. And Emily was saying something about the audio version of Ann's latest book, which was narrated by Meryl Streep. And I said, gosh, I wonder if they're friends. And Emily said, I have something to share about that. And we never got back to that because we got excited again about episode 200. So we left you all hanging. I know you can't wait to find out the answer <laughs> to that burning question that's kept you all up late into the night. Anne's previous novel, The Dutch House, was narrated by Tom Hanks. So she said at this event that I went to, the Aspen Words event, she said, you know, I was kind of full of myself. So I thought, who should I have narrate Tom Lake? And wouldn't it be fun if Meryl Streep could narrate Tom Lake? So she reached out to her literary agent, who happens to be Felicity Blunt. And Felicity Blunt happens to be married to Stanley Tucci, and also happens to be the sister of actress Emily Blunt. And Emily Blunt and Stanley Tucci both have appeared in movies with Meryl Streep. So Ann Patchett said to Felicity, do you think if I wrote an email asking Meryl Streep if she would be interested in narrating this audiobook that you could send it to her. And she said, well, I can do better than that and just give you Meryl Streep's email address. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Well-connected literary agent. So Anne typed up an email and said, you know, you're the mother of three. This is told from the perspective of a mother of three daughters. 
whatever Anne said. And Meryl emailed her right back and said, yes, I'll do it. And Anne said, well, don't you want to read the book first? And she said, no, I've read your other novels. I trust you. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) So that's how Meryl Streep came to narrate Tom Lake for Anne Patchett. That's fantastic. Yeah. Who's she going to get next? That's what I want to know. I mean, and what a great feeling for Anne to get that. And like, oh, my God, she's read all my novels. And that's so cool. That's really cool. You know. We already think Anne's a goddess, and then she's looking at Meryl Streep in that way. Yeah, well-connected people. So, Emily, what are you currently reading? Well, I had a long drive last week. I had to drive up to Boston and back just for a meeting. So I was looking for an audiobook, and I decided to download We Should Not Be Friends by Will Schwalbe. He narrates, and I was like, oh, I want Will to accompany me on this long drive. And this is the story of his time at Yale University, where junior year, he was invited to be part of a secret society. I think it was about 15 kids were invited. And what they tried to do were pick people who were polar opposites from each other, put them in this secret society where they had to commit to the entire junior year, eating two dinners a week together. And then also they did what he refers to as an audit where they did a four-hour presentation to their fellow secret society members about themselves from like birth to where they were. Wow, four hours? Yeah. That's amazing. Long. I think it's so interesting that they called it an audit also. And so the focus of the book is on his friendship that comes to pass with this guy, Maxie, who was the polar opposite of him. He didn't want anything to do with him. He was the jock. And Will was the drama English major, gay guy with a perm wearing an aquamarine leather jacket, you know. And of course, how he tells the story is this relationship develops because they were forced to spend time together and understand each other via these audits and dinners spent together. The backdrop, because of Will's age, it's in the 80s. So it's also the backdrop is during the AIDS epidemic and how that impacts him as a man that's coming into his own sexuality in his 20s. I'm about, I would say, 60% through. And he's also how we know Will Schwalbe as an author and someone working in the publishing industry, but how this friendship with Maxie has also withstood the test of time. Really enjoying it. He does a great job narrating, and it kept me great company that day. Nice. Well, my current read is also an audiobook. I'm listening to... Vampires of El Norte by Isabel Canas. It has two narrators. So it's Jose Nateras and Crystal Gonzalez. It's more, from what I understand, love story than vampire story, or the love story is what propels the plot, perhaps. But it's about two young lovers. Well, they're not really lovers yet, but you know, they're, they're bonded as really good friends and they're just starting to become aware of their sexuality and their attraction. And it's set in the early 1800s in Mexico. And the woman's family is wealthy. His is not. His family is kind of an outside family. And the girl is at the age where everyone is starting to look at her in a very different way. Mom all of a sudden won't let her go out as much, doesn't want her hanging around this young guy who is from the wrong class, because she's going to be probably married off to another wealthy family that owns a ranch. And they go out one night and only one of them comes back alive. 
That's a little bit of a spoiler. It happens very early on. And I'm just maybe like an hour in at this point and really liking it. I had picked up the book a couple months ago and just didn't get into it. But I really was drawn to it still. And so I thought, oh, I'm going to try the audio because you know how that goes and totally got hooked with it. And it's also great because it is set in Mexico and there are a lot of Spanish words that are pronounced correctly by the narrators, which gives it more of an aura of the time and the place. Fun. That yeah. sounds great. You're on like a vampire kick these days. Yeah, it happens sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever it takes to get us reading, right? Well, you know, I have to say for Christmas, Laura got me a Dracula tie, which I wore at Luann Rice's event the other day. And she also got me a Bram Stoker bobblehead. Mm. So Bram's sitting behind my shoulder. So he's been on my mind a lot and, and vampires too. And, you know, his Dracula, he's a monster, of course, but he looks human. And he gets better over time, better looking over time. I used to not like my vampires to be super handsome and romantic. I'm a little bit more flexible with that these days. But I also don't like them to be pure animals either. I do like them to be kind of humans. Hmm. More to come on that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm reading a book that I got in the mail from Aunt Ellen. On Thursdays, Chris and I often get texts from Aunt Ellen with offers of books because she works at the Friends of the Berkeley Public Library bookstore, which is a full-size, all-out, full-on bookstore. And I, a couple weeks ago, got a text from her with a picture of Always Home, A Daughter's Recipes and Stories by Fanny Singer. And she said, would you like this? And I said, yes, million exclamation points. So Fanny Singer is the daughter of Alice Waters. Alice Waters is the founder and owner of Chez Panis Restaurant in Berkeley, California, which is known as the restaurant that brought the farm-to-table movement to the United States, which is something that is easier done in California than in some other states where people live. So some people look at Alice Waters and think that she's a little bit precious and that her opinions about food are not things that are attainable by everybody. I agree with that. I also think she's done a lot of wonderful things. She has a program called the Edible Schoolyard, where she's trying to bring good food into schools and change the requirements that are mandated by the government for what is considered to be healthy food in cafeterias. I think she's an incredible human being. I also do understand that some people object to the idea that everybody can eat homegrown food and spend a lot of time cooking food every day. Not everybody can do that. But Fanny Singer is her daughter. And this is a memoir that she wrote, just really about what it is like to have Alice Waters as a mother, what her life was like growing up, you know, playing in the kitchen at Chez Panis, you know, my personal dream. And there are beautiful black and white photographs and also recipes that are in the narrative style. So it's not like there's a list of recipes. It's more in paragraph style. She describes how to make things, including things like her mother, she said, is famous for going anywhere they go when they travel. She sits down in a restaurant and says, I'd just like a simple green salad. That's one of the things she did when she was young. She went to France and discovered mescaline mix, which is that salad mix we can now get readily in grocery stores that wasn't in the United States back then. Yeah, just iceberg back in the day. Exactly. (laughs) You know, it's very personal in a way that only her daughter could talk about. And she's a beautiful writer. 
Again, it's called Always Home, A Daughter's Recipes and Stories by Fanny Singer. Nice. And I have to say, I like iceberg lettuce. I do, too. It's perfect on a sandwich, that crunch. Yeah. Mm, Yum. (laughs) And we grew up with it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Chris, what did you just read? Well, I have decided I have just read the Iliad. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Yeah, so I've decided I'm done with it. I've read it before, back when I was in college, and... I've been listening to the audio and dipping into the book. I have the physical book and the ebook. My heart is just not in it. So I'm thinking it's a one-time read for me. I did mark it as read and Goodreads because I've read it before. I think it is a really fun and contemporary translation. Uh, the group that's been doing the read-along has an Instagram chat going and just great conversations, really. And I appreciate everyone's commentary. It's been fun to read it. And I'll participate in the last Zoom that they have. But I, I've decided to move on. I And I do think I like the Odyssey more. Mm. That, that's kind of a thing. You know, they're both by Homer, attributed to Homer. And a lot of people are surprised that they like the Iliad so much after the Odyssey, because the Iliad is always just presented as this war book. But it's much more than that. But I do like the Odyssey a lot. And it could just be that I came to that younger and it's embedded in my imagination in a different way, maybe. Hmm. I'm not sure. But I recommend the Iliad, Emily Wilson's translation. It's really good. Well, and I'm proud of you because this is one of your New Year's resolutions mm-hmm. is to read books when you want to. And you're doing that. Yeah, you know, exactly. And I struggled with the decision because especially when it's a group read, it's so much fun to engage with people And I hate to step away from that aspect of it, but I do want to follow my heart when it comes to what I'm reading. And there's another big book that's taking up a lot of my mind these days that I'll talk about in Mm. upcoming reads. Ooh, I can't wait. I was thinking maybe it was just Bram whispering in your ear, your bobblehead. He often does. Dracula starts in May, the actual book. So I think it's a springtime thing and it's been really kind of warm and sunny here lately. Maybe not warm, but sunny. And I'm getting that spring itch, which could maybe be making me think about Dracula a little bit too. But no, the big book of which I am teasing is not Dracula. No, I just meant maybe Bram Stoker was whispering in your ear, put the Iliad away, put it away. Hmm. Read Dracula books. Yeah, he could be the angel devil on my shoulder. Right. Well, I finished The Sicilian Inheritance by Joe Piazza. This book releases on April 2nd. Joe Piazza has written 12 books, and she's been a travel writer. She now lives in Philadelphia, and this book is more autobiographical than any of the other novels she's ever written. Family lore was that there was some sort of inheritance in Sicily that was there sitting there. It was lore. That's what lore is, right? The stories that are told around the dining room table. And so she took that information and she put it into a novel form. And this book is about Sarah in current day 2016. She is a butcher who owns a restaurant that's failing. So as the novel opens, she's shuttering her restaurant and not in the best place. At the same time, her sassy Aunt Rosie, who she was supposed to go on a trip to Sicily with, but didn't because she was so busy with her restaurant, has passed away and has left her money 
with a note saying, I want you to go to Sicily. I've made arrangements for you. And I want you to find out about my mother, Serafina, who never made it to the United States and what this inheritance might be that is supposed to be sitting there for our family. So the novel takes off and is told from two different points of view from Serafina, Aunt Rosie's mother, who she's named after Sarah's great aunt. And that takes place in the early 1900s. And Serafina, what's happening in Sicily at the time she's living there is men are fleeing to America to look for work. So Serafina marries, she gets pregnant right away, but then her husband flees, not flees, but he, he doesn't flee. He leaves on a boat (laughs) to America to, to make a go of it and send money home. She turns out to not be too sad about that. And there's a witch, what they call a witch, or what we would call a woman who knows what the hell she's doing, <laughs> living up in the mountains, who's been somewhat ostracized. And she's the one they call in, like when women are giving birth and are sick or need help or whatever. And she starts to train with her and is very well respected in that hush hush kind of way of the women who take care of everything. But there's also this wonderful community of women because there's not as many men there. They've left. And these women have moved into roles that they really enjoy and are helping to support each other and their families. There is an inheritance. I don't want to spoil that part that Sarah discovers when she comes to Sicily. It's a beautiful novel if you like to travel in your reading. You know, I really felt like I was in Sicily. Some of the food writing is beautiful. So you can tell that Joe Piazza has been a travel writer. That part of the novel was really strong. I really enjoyed it. It's very women-centered, which I appreciated. And had that kind of little Alice Hoffman thing with that character that's healing people. Mm. I always enjoy that thread in a novel. So again, it's called The Sicilian Inheritance by Joe Piazza, and that is out on April 2nd. Wow. Well, my next book that I just read was male-centric, in a lot of ways, it was River of the Gods, Genius, Courage, and Betrayal in the Search for the Source of the Nile by Candace Millard. Oh, wow. This was such a good read. I enjoyed it so much. It was a spontaneous thing that I picked up when I was looking for something adventure to read. It's kind of funny because this is about events that happened in the mid-19th century, and it's historical, and this is a history book, it's documented, and I feel like I need to avoid spoilers. Mm-hmm. Isn't that a strange thing? Yeah. yeah. yeah that's cool. So, well, because it's adventure so that mm-hmm. makes sense. It is, yeah. And she does, you know, she uses some novelistic techniques within, like foreshadowing and things that you think, hmm, she's mentioned that twice now. Mm. You know, as a fiction reader, you know that means something is going to happen. But this is a tale of mainly two British men, Richard Burton and John Hanning Speck. This is the mid-19th century, so it's this time of great exploration for European white people who are going into the Middle East and Africa and Asia and mapping things and describing the cultures and ignoring the people who live there as being savages or just dumb people who don't know anything and can't contribute to their scientific studies. So Richard Burton was the leader of this first expedition to go and find the source of the Nile. People had been searching for it for thousands of years already, and he chooses as his second-in-command John Speck. These two guys were so different. 
Burton was this big, burly man, adventurous. He spoke over two dozen languages, and he was just an extreme explorer. Such a mind to be able to know so many languages. And he was very interested in, in studying the culture and and writing about them. He was always writing. He wrote a bunch of books and kept journals. Can you keep journals voraciously? Sure. Yeah, so he did. John Speck, on the other hand, didn't really write. He was more of a hunter. He was from the upper classes, whereas Burton, he was raised in France, even though his he was British. So he was always kind of more of an outsider, whereas Speck was definitely an insider coming from the upper classes in Britain. And he was a hunter to the extent that he even hunted pregnant animals and killed them, which in hunter circles, from what I understand, that's not usually an acceptable thing to do because you respect the animals and you want new generations to come. But he would even eat the fetuses of some of the unborn animals. So a little strange. Burton was also a little strange, but very, very different men. There's a third man who has, for the most part, been left out of the historical record, but he's getting more recognition these days, and his name is Sidi Mubarak Bombay. And he was an East African man who had been sold into slavery as a child in India. And after his enslaver died, he joined the army and was able to rise and eventually make his way home. And he was a great adventurer and explorer, And if it wasn't for him, so many of these British expeditions would not have been possible. But the fascinating thing is, is that these expeditions lasted for two or three years. I mean, they were hardcore expeditions. And these white people were getting so sick from all of the different viruses and things they were encountering that it's just amazing that they even survived. They were quite lucky. And then to have somebody like Bombay on their side. So there are three main tensions within this historical book that almost reads like a novel. And so the first tension is the initial expedition. And then there's the post expedition fallout. And then there's the lead up to a public debate between Burton and Speck, because Speck kind of betrays Burton in a lot of ways. He takes credit for a lot of things. The day before that debate is supposed to happen, something happens and the debate never takes place. And that was something that was a surprise in some ways, but not. But later on in the book, there is a betrayal that happens that I actually gasped out loud and called somebody a name. Mm. And I was just like, wow, I can't believe that that person did that. Mm. So if you've read this book and you need to talk about it, The River of the Gods by Candace Millard, I'm happy to chat about it because I don't want to give spoilers really read this book if you're looking for a good historical yarn with adventure. Well, I know that's on the gentleman callers list. He has a copy of it. So maybe if he reads it, I'll send him your way. Oh, good. Yes. Gab. That sounds good. I would love that. He just read the other one of hers. Is it about Teddy Roosevelt? Yeah. Is it the river of doubt? Yeah. That one I think. Yeah. Yeah. He just finished that. So I know that that is his next one. Okay. Her other one. Yeah. yeah. I mean, really good. I mean, she worked for National Geographic for a long time. So she really knows how to tell yeah. a good story about adventure. Yeah. Well, I've read two short stories for my year of reading short stories on Mondays. The first one was called The Irish Wedding by Elizabeth McCracken, who's the woman that I saw in conversation with Ann Patchett and Aspen. And this story, The Irish Wedding, comes from the collection titled The Souvenir Museum. 
I had gotten a copy of this on audiobook when I was traveling and decided I'm going to try to listen to this short story via the audiobook. And it was narrated by Kate Redding. And it's about Jack and Sadie who arrive in Dublin from the United States for a wedding. They land really late at night. They rent a car. Jack can't drive stick. So Sadie is driving wrong side of the road, stick shift at night. It's raining. They have to get into the Irish countryside. It's very funny. And they arrive at this estate in the countryside for Jack's sister's wedding. None of them have ever met Sadie. And then it's that kind of classic wedding situation story. It reminded me a little bit of Maggie Shipstead's novel called Seating Arrangements. If any of you have read that, which was a little bit of a satire, because I believe that was a wedding on the Hamptons. This one is a short story, so obviously it's not full novel size. But her writing is so, dare I say, perfect. I mean, just great. And if you read this story and you like the characters, I have read a review that says they appear in several of the other stories in the collection. I did not read them. I'm really working hard to read a story in a collection and put it down so I can have more short stories from different authors. The second short story I read was from a collection called Last Night by James Salter. Have you read James Salter, Chris? That name is so familiar. I don't think so, though. Yeah, he's very famous, I know, in like literary circles. When I listened to books on the nightstand back in the day when there were very few book podcasts, I listened to that and I listened to the Book Riot podcast with Jeff O'Neill and Rebecca Shinsky, and they would talk about James Salter all the time. And I never read him. But then there was that year where Anne Kingman on Books on the Nightstand was making an effort to read short stories. I remember that. Remember? Mm -hmm. And there was a Booktopia where she actually did a session on short stories with the short story writer Jill McCorkle, where we all read last night just the short story called Last Night by James Salter, which is the title story in this collection called Last Night that I have in my sweaty little palm that I happened to find when I was at a bagel store (laughs) in Vermont and they had like a free shelf. And I saw this and thought, oh, I want to read him. And so I did not read Last Night because I've already read that short story, which was amazing and was really fun to talk about in a group. What I decided to read was one that was called Such Fun, because I liked the title. That's why I chose it. And I have mixed feelings about it. I mean, it was one of those stories where I read it and I was like, I don't know if a dude should be writing this. (laughs) And I know that, I mean, he was of his time. This book came out in 2005. So that was a little while ago. But it's about three friends and their romantic life and they go back to a house and have drinks and it was fine. I just didn't love it. Last night, however, the other story in this collection that I've read, amazing. So there you have it. My two short stories for these last two weeks. Very good. (laughs) So the next book that you finished is one that I had finished just a little bit before you last night by Luann Rice. Yes. And Luann Rice is our guest on this episode She is the author spotlight at the end. So we won't go into too much detail. Yeah. But we'll just say briefly that this book, it's a novel that takes place at the Ocean House, which is a luxury hotel in Rhode Island, a real place where Luann wrote a lot of this novel. 
And it opens with a murder. A murder on the beach during a snowstorm. Yes. Some characters from both The Shadow Box and Last Day appear. Luann talks about that in our conversation. I found it to be a page turner. I really enjoyed it. It's very nautical. I didn't know who did it. I will say that this isn't a spoiler. We're going to be very careful. What I found unusual, and you've read more thrillers than me, Chris, but what I found unusual about this novel is you know who did the actual killing right away, Mm -hmm. but you don't know the why and who else is involved. Right. So. Yeah, it's a why done it. Mm. I've heard people call it different things like the who done it is when you just find a body and you don't know. And then the why done it is when the action starts with the murder. Right. And then you have to figure out all the the characters and yeah. Yeah. So really good. Really Mm -hmm. enjoyed it a lot. And we'll be sharing our conversation with Luann at the end, as Emily said. Luann led us to a new author to us. I wasn't aware of her until Luann's event, which we'll talk a little bit about coming up in our Biblio Adventure segment. But we both also read Blood Sisters by Vanessa Lilly. Yes. Which got me out of my reading slump. I was in a little bit of a reading slump there for a while. And I think I don't want to blame the Iliad. I think there was just a lot going on in my life. And, you know, the Iliad. (laughs) But, you know, just deciding... Anywho, Blood Sisters is really a fantastic novel. While it's centered around the disappearance and murder of indigenous women and girls, and it starts out with the main protagonist, who's an archaeologist, Sid is her name. She's in Rhode Island, and a skull had been discovered, and she works for the BIA, Bureau of Indian Affairs. And so she's called out to do the archaeology around it. She's also married, so her wife is pregnant, and she's wanted to be pregnant for a long time, and Sid is kind of on the fence about that. So then Sid's boss calls and wants her to go to another region to investigate a skull that's been found. In Oklahoma, which is where Sid was born and raised, and the novel actually starts with a violent scene it's not gruesome, bloody violence, but it's the idea of violence. Yeah. You know? Yes. And so she's going back, quote, to the scene of the crime where she was raised. And she's fled that. She's living totally across the country in Rhode Island. And so it takes her into her past. Yes. And she has to confront her family and experiences she's had there. I downloaded the sample from Kendall. And I thought I was going to, you know, read a chapter or two just to see what it's about. Well, I ended up buying it and binge reading it. <laughs> I enjoyed it so much. Yes, we both were reading it in our houses side by side (laughs) over the weekend. I actually bought a copy for my daughter, Rachel, knowing I would read it before I sent it to her. My daughter has an undergrad degree in cultural anthropology, and actually one of her classmates does work very similar to this. If they're going to go do construction somewhere, she is brought in to do an archaeological study and make sure that there's nothing there, particularly indigenous remains. I thought it was fascinating to learn about some of that aspect, too, of this woman's job. Yes. And then, you know, people doing bad things. Yeah, so it's set in like 2008. She dropped some things that lets you know it's 2008. And the events that lead her back to Oklahoma are around a murder that happened in like 1990s. 
we don't want to say too much to give too many spoilers, yeah. but the action is a lot about the drug cartels. It's one of those mystery thrillers where the protagonist really gets worked over, mm-hmm. <laughs> which, you know, yeah. I kind of like. I, that's what I, I kind of liked about like Nevada Bar books, her early ones. Like she'd always get kind of worked over, but she keeps going. Mm-hmm. It was really good. I'm so glad to know about Vanessa Lilly. We're going to talk more about her when we talk about our Biblio adventure last week. If you're looking for an action-packed story, if you want to learn more about Oklahoma and that part of the country, if you want to read something about the indigenous world of Oklahoma, I think it's a great novel for that. I will say at the end of the novel, there's also an author's note that's really good that I appreciated learning more. Yeah. Vanessa Lilly was a columnist for the Providence Journal. She's a good writer. Yeah, this for sure. This is very fast-paced. It is. And the history that is included, it's really good because it's it's enough to remind you or to inform you if you weren't aware of the things that went on, like with the Trail of Tears when the Cherokee people were removed and forced to live in Oklahoma, and then minerals and value of the land was discovered and then their land was taken away again. Mm-hmm. So you get some of that backstory, but it's not done with big info dumps at all. Right. The other thing I really appreciated is she does have some Cherokee words sprinkled throughout the novel, but she always tells you what the word means. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciate that. Sometimes I feel like when that doesn't happen, it takes me out of the story. Yeah. I, yeah. I just thought she handled it really well. This episode is sponsored by Anthony Asiello and his novel Brooklyn 76. In the heart of Bensonhurst, an Italian-American family struggles to survive one explosive day, the nation's bicentennial. Brooklyn 76 is a funny, dark, and unsentimental family drama and coming-of-age story set against a working-class neighborhood on the brink of transformation. Book Life Review says, with wit, feeling, and an escalating sense of urgency, Asiello dramatizes the gulf between a nation's performance and the lived reality of its citizens, an accomplished, impressive debut. For more information, head to anthonyasiello.com. You can also find out more via the show notes for episode 201, located at bookcougars.com. So Biblio Adventures, we had a major fun joint jaunt last week that we both the next morning texted each other like, oh, that was so much fun. Oh my gosh. It was one of my favorite days as a book cougar. Yes. Really lovely. And part of it is like there was a lot of buildup. We knew this day was coming for a long time. So we, (laughs) I guess that means, you know, it could have turned out terribly and not met our expectations, but it was just fun. So fun. Should we tell you what it was? (laughs) (laughs) Now, let's move on. What are you reading next? (laughs) The author, Luann Rice, her novel Last Night, pubbed last week. We reached out to her and said, we'd love to record with you and have you on as an author and an author spotlight. And then she said, well, let's do it the day of my book launch at Bank Square Books and Mystic, and then please come to the book launch after party. Yeah, that was lovely. So we did. We had a recording session with her. Yeah, we went to Old Lyme. Luann is a local author who lives on the shoreline a few towns over. So we went to the Phoebe Griffin Noise Library. Thank you to them. They gave us a beautiful study room with good acoustics. We grabbed our equipment and went 
and finally met her, which yes. in the world of social media, it felt like we knew her and had met her already, but we had never met her. We in hadn't person. met her. Yeah. I mean, the pandemic was kind of strange for a while. So to finally meet her in person was lovely. And it did feel like I know you already. <laughs> right. And we had a great conversation. And she had said when we sat down, you know, I need to leave at 3.30 because I'm going to meet Vanessa Lilly, the author of Blood Sisters, who I'll be in conversation with at Bank Square. Well, 3.30 came and went and we were like <laughs> walking her to her car because we all couldn't stop talking. So. Yes, it was fabulous. Yeah. So then after that, we drove over to Mystic and parked behind Bank Square Books there and had some time to browse after securing chairs at the event space because it was going to be a crowded room. And it was, the event was packed. It was standing room only. So many people. She is beloved in the greater world, but also on the shoreline and had invited, I think, a lot of her family and friends. And there were bookstagrammers. I mean, all sorts of people there. Yeah, she just yeah. does so much with the local art world. And she's an environmentalist. So she's involved in that community as well. Yeah, well attended. Yeah. And Vanessa Lilly was in conversation with her. She was an author to that point we'd never heard of. Yes. <laughs> so that was a really great conversation that they had. They're both mystery thriller writers. And of course, there was a lot of conversation about murder. It was really funny because at the end, the event manager said, okay, everyone, please stay in your seats so that Luann can get up to the table back there to autograph for you. But she needs to be able to get there. So please stay in your seats. And Luann said something like, yeah, or you know, you might get murdered. <laughs> <laughs> It was just so yes. funny because she's so sweet. And yeah. for her to say that was just hysterical. And her delivery was very deadpan. Yes. But in the setup, we should say, is she had in the conversation talked about her novel Last Day was based on a real murder that had occurred that affected her family, that she's currently following a very high profile murder case in Connecticut. You know, so there was a little bit of she makes it real. And there's a murder in Last Night, the novel she was there to talk about. So when she said that, it was kind of like, yeah. Oh, I know why. She'd also said that the Connecticut shoreline has a very high number of murders for its population, which gives you pause living here. It does. Here. <laughs> it does indeed. Yeah. Murder was on our minds. Yes. So when she said that, it was funny and also kind of true. Yeah. 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 But wonderful conversation between them. It was. Then we also got to learn a little bit more about Vanessa Lilly and her novel, Blood Sisters. It was really fun to see a novelist who's very new at her craft. I mean, this isn't her debut, but I think she has four novels. Yes, I think she has two other novels. And then she did a joint novel with three or four other authors, I think she said, Young Rich Widows, which sounds really funny. Yeah. And you could just tell that she's looking at Luann like 38 books. 38 books. That's the first thing she did when we when the conversation started. She just started flipping through the front pages of Luann's book, where when you have that many, it's multiple pages. Multiple pages. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought that they did a great job talking about each other's craft and the different places they are in their careers. Yes. And then we went to the after party. Yeah, just down the street, around the block to an old inn called the Daniel Packer Inn. I-N-N-E, yeah, I think is interesting. Yeah, one of those old inns or, you know, buildings in New England is built probably in the 1700s. 
beautiful food. They had hors d'oeuvres so that people could mingle and meet each other. We filled up our plates and then decided to go upstairs to see what was going on there. And we're thrilled to see Vanessa, the author Vanessa Lilly, sitting at a table with what turns out to be her best friend from high school who'd come in for the event. Yeah, Addison. So um, we sat with them and and really had a wonderful conversation. And when we were talking about types of author events, it's like, oh, this is a new author type event because having the author's best friend from high school come (laughs) in conversation (laughs) because she's like, oh, he has so much dirt on me, which is funny. (laughs) You know, it's kind of neat to meet somebody and to have their history with them in that way. Yes. But it was also funny because she was trying to explain to him, not all author events are standing room only like this. Yes. And they don't have wonderful spreads of food and drinks afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If that was anybody's first event, yeah, that was an unusual situation and so lovely. I mean, people were just so happy to be there and, and talking about Luann's book and Vanessa's as well and, and just enjoying one another's company. Right. And Addison is a writer in his own right out in LA. Yeah, he's a screenwriter. Yeah. So they were talking about the difference between that and whether they read each other's stuff. It was really fun. I'm glad we sat there and we just had a great time. Yeah. It was a wonderful day. It was indeed. Thank you so much, Luann, for inviting us. So I also had another Biblio adventure in my pursuit of watching film adaptations of books. I went and saw American Fiction based on the novel Erasure by Percival Everett. It's been nominated for five Academy Awards, and it was fantastic. I really enjoyed it. You know, it's meta. There's a novel inside of a novel that he's working on. And I was like, how are they possibly going to translate that to film? And they did a great job. I'm not going to tell you how they did it because I don't want to ruin it. But it's very funny. There's a lot of one-liners, and they really poke the bear of publishing, of racism in America, and siblings and family life and the secrets that we keep in families. I went with the gentleman caller and his favorite scene is a scene where they're spreading someone's ashes. And it goes from that moment of everyone's being very thoughtful, even though the letter that they're reading from the person who passed away has a lot of humor in it. But then as the ashes are being spread, something very funny happens. And that was his favorite scene. So they did that great thing of there's always black humor, even in sad times. Mm -hmm. So really good. I highly recommend it. Again, it's called American Fiction based on Erasure by Percival Everett. Well, the only other biblio adventure I had was putting together Ikea bookcases. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I shouldn't say that. I did do some bookstore shopping. Okay. I To fill those bookcases. Yes, I know. I went to Barnes & Noble one day, quite by accident. I mean, I seriously took a wrong turn because I was in New Haven buying those bookcases. <laughs> and I went out and I took a right because I'm not used to being on that side of New Haven. <laughs> so I found myself in Milford, lots of traffic. And I was like, oh, Barnes & Noble. So I went in and I purchased some books to fill my cases. But I also made my first online order to Blackwell's Mm. from the UK. Because, you know, I was upset about the book depository closing. They did international shipping for free. And Blackwell's does as well. I didn't realize that. I was led there by a book called Women of the Anarchy. And this is by Sharon Bennett Connolly. It's about the aftermath of the white ship 
that sunk. Remember that book mm-hmm. that I read? Yeah. It's about the anarchy, which was a huge civil war in the 1100s in England. It's not out in the States until a little bit later, but I had to have it right away. And when I saw free shipping, I was like, oh, good. Right on. Yeah. So I also picked up in that same order, Stranger Within the Gates, a collection of short stories by Bertha Thomas, who was a writer from Wales. She's passed on. Her dates were 1845 to 1918. But as a story writer, she wrote in a lot of different types of genres, everything from humor to gothic stories. I thought I'd give her a try because I do the Wales Readathon in March or Doathon as it's called. So I have that ready to go. And did you get anything at Barnes and Noble? I did. <laughs> so um, was this because you needed to fill these bookcases because you didn't have enough books to already fill them? I just know. Asking. I just don't have any books. <laughs> oh my God. I was like, Chris, really, do you want to do this? And I so I bought three books at Barnes and Noble and I had already put like three back because I was like, okay, come on, be realistic. They'll still be there. So anyway, the one that I picked up that I kind of had in my mind was The Mayor of Maxwell Street by Avery Cunningham. And this is a historical novel set in 1921. Nellie Sawyer is the daughter of the wealthiest Negro in America, in quotation marks. So she's a mover and shaker in that society. And what I like about it is the focus is on an African-American person and community in Chicago in the 1920s, because usually the stories that come out of that time period and that location are about Al Capone and the gangsters. So caught my eye. The other book is a debut novel, Wild and Distant Seas by Tara Carr Roberts. Isn't that a beautiful cover? It, is beautiful. it has a wonderful cover. There's a whale on the cover. And this is a story that kind of starts off with Ishmael from Moby Dick. So Moby Dick is a a little bit of a part in this, but it's about, I think, four generations of women starting in the mid-19th century and going up to more contemporary days around the globe. The other book is a biography that is one that I had heard about the subject as well and was curious about her. It's First to the Front, The Untold Story of Dickie Chappelle, Trailblazing Female War Correspondent. And this is by Larissa Reinhardt. The opening just really captured my imagination. So I had read about her. She was the first female war correspondent to die in combat, in a combat situation. This is the first paragraph. Beneath a gray winter sky, Georgette Dickey Meyer watched plane after plane depart the Boston airfield. They were headed for Worcester, Massachusetts, where a historic flood had cut off every road into the small city. The only way to deliver much-needed supplies was by air. Dickey, a fledgling teen reporter, had pitched the idea of covering the airlift to the Boston Traveler, a local newspaper that had given her the tentative green light. But to really get the story and secure publication, she'd have to make her way aboard one of the supply planes. Mm. So it's like, come on, that's a teenager already having that kind of gumption? Right. I thought, I'm definitely getting this one. More to come on that. So those were my... Biblio Adventures, they will show up again in currently reading or just read segments. Hopefully, fingers crossed. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I had a surprise Biblio Adventure last night. I went to Charter Books in Newport, Rhode Island, 
because I happened to find out, I think via social media, that the author Laird Hunt was going to be there for the book launch of his new set of short stories called Float Up, Sing Down. And Laird Hunt is the author of Zori, which longtime listeners might remember was our friend Russell from Ink and Paper Blogs, number one read of 2022, and made my top 10 list of 2023. I wanted to meet the author of this novel because it's such a slim, sparely written book and says so much. And I find people like that fascinating. So what did Laird have to say? (laughs) This is a set of 14 short stories that takes place over the course of one summer day in 1982 in Indiana, where Zori takes place. And he said, basically, he just didn't want to leave the world of Zori behind. It is written in order. So just for you short story readers to know, he said that if you read them in order, the second story is informed by the first story, which is informed by the third story, etc. If you look at the cover, Chris, which it does have a beautiful cover, it does just say stories. And he wanted to call it story cycle. But he said, I guess novels or books used to have that on the cover, but now they don't do that anymore. And he said his editors and publishers freaked out when he recommended that. Interesting. So it just says stories. It turns out that he had a very expansive childhood where he was born in Singapore. He lived all over the world. And as a teenager, he was living in London with his father And then circumstances required that he moved to rural Indiana to live with his grandmother. He didn't give any specifics to what happened. But he said, you know, imagine he's a teenager, that he ended up falling in love with Indiana in large part because of his grandmother and the way he was presented to the community, which I thought was such a beautiful thing to say, because could have not gone well (laughs) for a variety of reasons. And so Zori is not his grandmother, but is similar to his grandmother and his experience with people in rural Indiana, which he loves. And it's really important to him to paint a picture to people who sometimes think differently of rural Midwest. Mm-hmm. He read the start of three of the different stories in the collection, just so you could kind of get the character and the voice. The first question was kind of one of those questions slash comments where the woman said, your writing is so descriptive and so vivid. And, you know, how do you do it? And he said, well, I've read a lot, particularly a lot of Willa Cather. (laughs) And he said that he feels like she transports you via chiseled details with warmth. I thought that was such a lovely sentence. Yeah, that's really hits home with her writing. Yeah. And he said he's currently reading The Professor's House. He did want people to know that Float Up, Sing Down, the story collection, has more humor in it than Zori. And it's true. He had us laughing in just some of those pages that he read last night. The other thing he talked about, he's a professor, a writing professor at Brown University in Providence. And he said he really tries to impart to his students the importance of revision And that what his students often want to do is they write something and then if, you know, he recommends edits, they're like, I'm just going to throw it away and work on something different. (laughs) And he said he's really trying to impart that and lets them know, like his novel Zori, he worked on for 15 years. 
This is not a tome, you guys. This book is what a hundred and some odd pages, right? Yeah, it's let a, me look at it's it. It's thin. What is that saying? It's I'd love to write you a shorter letter, but I didn't have the time. Right. <laughs> yes. 161 pages, Zori, 15 years. And he said he recently just did a, an event in New York about Gustave Flaubert and quoted him saying, it's no small thing to be simple. Zori is an example. Yeah, that's amazing. And, you know, Cather was a lover of French writers. So there's that connection as well between the three of them. Mm, interesting. Well, I just loved the event. He's a delightful man. You know, his backstory made me understand how he can write from a woman's perspective so well, because he has this lovely relationship with both his grandmother and then his grandmother's sister lived there as well. And he told some funny stories about them. And he also talked about his very first novel was very experimental and he sent a copy to his grandmother for her to read. And then he came home a little bit later and she sat him down at the kitchen table and said, I've read it one time. I'm halfway through reading it a second time and I don't understand. Can you explain it to me? Which I thought was really sweet on the one hand, like she cared enough that she really wanted to understand it. But he said, it's also that one thing that he wants to impart to people is that Rural irritation is real, is exactly the way he said it. In other words, people in rural communities have a lot of access to libraries. They're avid readers, his grandmother being one of them. But he had written this incredible experimental thing, and she was like, I don't get it. And when he wrote Zori, his grandfather said, I finally get what you write, <laughs> which I thought was so sweet. So he talked a lot about his family, his writing process, and these two books, Zori and Float Up, Sing Down, Lair Hunt. If you get to see them, I highly recommend it. Upcoming jaunts. Do you have any, Chris? You know, I have an, um, a virtual event coming up. It's The Vanishing of Carolyn Wells, Investigations into a Forgotten Mystery Author. And this is an author talk with Rebecca Rego Berry. February 15th at 2 p.m. Eastern time, because it is in Ohio. This is being sponsored through the Rare Books and Manuscript Library, which is part of the Ohio State University Libraries. There's a new book out about Carolyn Wells, and she was hugely popular in her day. Her dates were 1862 to 1942. So if you were looking to be turned on to an earlier American mystery writer. You might want to check out some of her books as well as this new biography. And her papers are housed there at the Rare Books and Manuscript Library, which is one reason they're having this event there. And you do have to register for the event. It's going to be recorded. So I'm hoping that since I've registered, I'll be able to watch it later because the event is happening when I'm at work. Mm. I love my new job, but man, it's getting in the way of Biblio Adventures. Yes, if you're wondering why Chris didn't go with me last (laughs) night, that's why, and I'm not bitter at all. (laughs) (laughs) So I only have one as well, which is watching a video of an event I did register for Chris, and then I didn't get to go to because it was when I was in Colorado for an unexpectedly longer period of time. Roxanne Gay hosts a monthly book club And for the first time, she did an event with a cookbook author. And it's the one that Russell recommended to me during our top 10 recording. And it's called Start Here by Sola El Whaley. 
and it's instructions for becoming a better cook. This thing is a giant. I got it out of the library and it was at home while I was in Colorado. So I had to take it back when I got home, checked it out again. I'm really looking forward to it. What they did was they cooked and talked about the book in Roxanne Gay's New York kitchen, which I don't think is very big. So I cannot wait to watch it. If it is available for the wider audience, I will definitely put that link into the show notes. Do you have any upcoming reads? Yes, I do. Now that I'm out of my little reading slump, my short reading slump, I should call it, I'm going to start Finding Margaret Fuller by Allison Pataki. I didn't want to start this while I was feeling slumpy because I, I know I'm going to love it. I'm setting myself up for expectations. I hear yes. that. But um, <laughs> I'm really looking forward to this so much. So this is what I'm starting next. Then the other book, I just want to give a little shout out to this. This is not going to start until March, but our friend Kate and I are doing a buddy read of Moby Dick by Melville. We're going to start on March 8th. And if anyone would like to join us, let me know sooner rather than later, because if we have other people who want to join in, we're going to have a Instagram chat set up for that. And if no one wants to join, Kate and I will just hang out and have conversations. <laughs> we plan on reading it rather slowly. We're going to take maybe 10 chapters a week. It has 135 chapters, 136 if you count the epilogue. So we're going to take our time. We don't want to rush through it. And it's my second time reading it. It's going to be Kate's first time reading it. So if you're leery about starting it as a first timer, don't be because Kate's newbie. I'm kind of newbie too. I think Colleen, one of our listeners who's been our guest before, I think she's read it like four times, she said. So wow. yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. And if you're interested in joining us, email us bookcookers at gmail.com. And we both have Indigo by Beverly Jenkins coming up. That's our first quarter read along in our year of reading about romance. And that Zoom conversation is March 3rd at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Email us if you'd like to take part. I also have... When we were at the library waiting for Luann to show up, I came across a book that was front facing in the stacks called Mrs. Caliban by Rachel Ingalls. And this was the novel that both Ann Patchett and Elizabeth McCracken recommended. It's this really tiny little novel. And I read a little bit about Rachel Ingalls. I didn't know she was one of those authors. She sadly has passed away, but people didn't think much of her until later in life and her books were rediscovered. It did happen before her death. So she did get to appreciate a little bit of her fame. And I believe this is about a woman who falls in love with a creature, sea creature. I don't know, more to come. It has a very compelling cover. I know it looks like a little sea creature face yeah. with these little lips on the bottom. Yes, I'm oh. starting this tonight. And then I also have an essay collection called Black Love Matters, Real Talk on Romance, Being Seen, and Happily Ever Afters, edited by Jessica P. Pride. Thank you to our listener, Katie, who let us know about this anthology. And it's about romance and what Black romance has looked like historically in the romance genre, where we are today. It has, I think, 14 or 15 contributors, including... Beverly Jenkins, Jasmine Guillory, Julie E. Moody Freeman, who we met at the Romance Conference at Yale. So I'm really looking forward to digging in. And I think that's all on my piles. 
So for those of you who have listened to episode 200, you know that we have a lot of books coming up through the course of the year that weren't released yet because that was the assignment we gave our contributors. Let us know about two books you can't wait for us to read. Chris and I also talk about books that aren't released yet in different episodes. So just a reminder that we also have this segment called Out Now that reminds you about books we've talked about on past episodes that are now available. Now, some of you may have pre-ordered them. Congratulations, you got some book mail. If you haven't, here's just a reminder about these others that are out now. The Fury by Alex Michelades, No One Can Know by Kate Alice Marshall, Praise Song for the Kitchen Ghosts by Crystal Wilkinson, Last Night by Luann Rice, Imagination, a Manifesto by Ruha Benjamin, One Wrong Word by Hank Philippi Ryan, The Kamigawa Food Detectives by Hisashi Kashiwai, translated by Jesse Kirkwood, The Cemetery of Untold Stories by Julia Alvarez. Well, coming up next is our author spotlight with Luann Rice. Luann is the New York Times bestselling author of 37 novels, including three YA novels. Her books have been translated into 30 languages, and several novels have been adapted for television. Last Night is her 38th novel for adults. Luann's books often center on love, family, nature, and the sea. She was our guest on episode 126, which we recorded over Zoom during the pandemic. Luann's a local to us author. She's here in Connecticut. So this time, we had the pleasure of recording with Luann in person at the Phoebe Griffin Noise Library in Old Lyme. Enjoy our conversation. We're very excited to be here today talking with Luann Rice about her 38th book, Last Night. Luann was also our guest on episode 126, talking about her book, Shadowbox. Mm-hmm. So be sure to go back and listen to that episode after you enjoy this interview. Well, I'm so thrilled to be with the book Cougars, <laughs> to be with Emily and Chris. It's really just a joy. I mean, I'm such a fan. And I'm really honored to be on your podcast for the second time, the second and a half time if you count (laughs) the 200th. And congratulations. Oh, thank you. That's just amazing. Thank you so much. Yeah. And so um, we're recording today at the Old Lyme Library, which is the Phoebe Griffin Noise Library, which is a beautiful historic library with a fantastic new addition and lots of beautiful Impressionist art on the walls. I know, they really celebrate the legacy of the Old Lyme School of Art artists who were, um, they were really the beginning of American Impressionists. And right down the road, um, as you know, you were just there, Emily, the Florence Griswold Museum, which is really one of the preeminent museums that has an amazing collection of American Impressionists and tonalists. And I think two or three doors down from here is the Cooley Gallery, which is one of my favorite places to go and hang out. We're adding that to our list for sure. (laughs) (laughs) So, Luann, one of the things you mentioned on episode 126 was that you start each novel of yours with a character. That's what inspires you to write the novel. So when it comes to last night, we're wondering, was there a particular character that inspired this story? There was. Um, it's interesting, because last night is my third thriller. Um, 
I've, I've written so many novels where there is mystery and there is, um, you know, kind of tragedy in a family, but these are actual thrillers um, because I love to read them, and so I let myself write them. And so, in a way, even though I do start with a character, and in this case, you know, I, I definitely did, but I also, in all three of them, there's been a murder that has somehow connected to my life, actual crimes. And they've kind of just been, you know, I mean, how do you ever get over those things? And so that was like in the back of my mind when I was writing this book. But also, you know, my main character is an artist. And I, maybe it's because I'm from old Lyme, but, and my mother was an artist, that I often write about art. And so she was really the, the first. She's also a sister, and she has a beloved niece, and that's the story of my life. <laughs> I'm a sister, and I have, you know, beloved nieces. So it, it was really her. So do you want to give a quick elevator pitch about what Last Night is about? Sure, and I'm terrible at that. <laughs> really terrible. <laughs> well, give it a shot. We'll see how it goes. Okay. Well, it takes place at the Ocean House in Watch Hill, Rhode Island, in a blizzard, and one of the sisters comes down to meet the other sister. They're supposed to be in the lobby together, and time goes on, and her sister doesn't show up. And so she goes looking for her. And I'll say that it's about a murder, a missing child, and a search for the answer. Mm, that's a, that's that's a great very description. Good description. Oh, really? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. No spoilers. Perfect. Thank you. Ironically, our arcs of this novel arrived during the first snow here in Connecticut. So ah. it was really timely and fun to read it while we had snow on the ground here. Thank you. I mean, if you're, you know, the blizzards of my youth and the snowstorms of my youth, they live very strongly in my memory. And I really miss them. I miss when the snowbanks were tall and you can make snow forts and go skating and skiing, you know, on the golf course or locally. That hasn't happened too much recently. So I guess when I was writing last night, I wanted to bring that back, that feeling of what it's like, you know, how enclosed you feel. But you can't wait to go outside either. It's just very evocative for me. Yeah. Yeah, and kind of alive. Yeah. Which is an, an interesting backdrop also for death. Right? Yeah, thank you. Well, my friend Deborah Goodrich-Royce, who's a wonderful writer, and she's one of the owners of the Ocean House, and has this incredible series that I recommend everyone go to. It's the Ocean House Author Series. She and I talk about books a lot. And in fact, she's one of the only people that I'll talk about a work in progress with, because I don't really like to do that. But anyway, back to Murder in the Snow. On pub date yesterday, she sent me this enormous bouquet of red roses. She got them from a florist who interspersed them with mint and also had these twisty stems in the glass vase. It was really like murder in the snow. Like, <laughs> these red roses are like blood drops <laughs> on the snowy path. <laughs> but it was really exciting to get that. Yeah, oh, yeah. We're going to try not to have too many spoilers, but red roses do play a part in this novel. So that was an appropriate thing for her to send your way. It's true. And she, she remembered that. That's so cool. That's great. Yeah. So there are so many characters in this novel, and we wanted to ask you about some of them are returning characters mm -hmm. from Last Day and The Shadow Box, mm -hmm. 
But there's a character written from a six-year-old's point of view. How was that for you to write? I actually love to write from a child's point of view. Everything from her age, Cece's age, up into the teens, I just get into the character so deeply. And so I really enjoyed writing it. Her voice was strong to me. You know, you asked what character did I begin with. She was right there. I mean, she was definitely calling me to write about her. And I know that sometimes in thrillers, they don't have a lot of kids, certainly not a point of view. But I felt as if her voice really added a lot to the sense of danger and anticipation and tension. And I have to say, I usually don't enjoy books with children. I usually avoid them, (laughs) children and animals, you know, Um, just because, you know, things happen or it's a little hokey. They just seem more like a device um, in some books I've read in the past. But this, I have to say, Cece is her name, right? Um, I couldn't wait to get back to the sections with her voice. I enjoyed her so much. Talk about a strong voice. I mean... She had such a great, strong voice and was such a vivid character. Oh, thanks, Chris. Yeah. That really means a lot, especially how you feel about kid characters, because I kind of shared that with you. She felt strong to me. The novel takes place in Rhode Island, and she and her mother are living in Rhode Island. But she comes from Hollywood. Her father is a famous French director who's had his day, and he's down on his luck, just isn't getting the work that he used to get and the acclaim he used to get. And I felt as if that was really important to her, but she wasn't a broken kid at all. She's content, like, or she's a positive little girl. I kind of felt like maybe I got to relive my six-year-old life and make it a little better. (laughs) (laughs) Although nothing about the story was better. (laughs) That's that's really great. I, I mean, I was wondering... Or I made the connection that it was art, that her creating her own art mm-hmm. with, you know, her mother's guidance and example, you know, if that was one of the things that gave her such a strong sense of self. I think so. And that is something that does come for me because I began writing when I was really young, but I didn't know I was writing, if that makes any sense at all. It's just what I did. You know, it's like breathing, writing, breathing. <laughs> <laughs> I think it did help me. But the funny thing is, well, I mean, it's not really that funny, but I never wrote overtly about painful things. I wrote about mostly nature-happy stories, really. But that, I think, was wish fulfillment, maybe, and something that I wanted it to be. So I think maybe that's what Cece does, too. Mm -hmm. Although she's not writing, she's actually making kind of assemblages, um, kind of little collages of things. Yeah, which was a little bit reminiscent of the shadow box. Thank you. Yeah. I love that kind of art. I had a professor in college, Maureen McCabe, who is still a fantastic artist, and she does those kinds of things. They're shadow boxes, but they're really mystical. She did something with standing stones. She went to Ireland and did that. And she often does things from mythology. You know, she really inspired me. She was my studio art professor. I was the world's worst artist, but I love (laughs) art so much. (laughs) So I think her work, you know, has always been an inspiration. Let's talk about art in your life. You're a patron of the arts. If anyone follows Luann on any of her social media accounts, you'll see that she is frequently going to art shows and supporting artists. How does going to a museum exhibit or something like that, or reading Emily Dickinson poetry, Mm -hmm. another form of art. How does that 
inform your writing and inspire you? So when I was young, my mother was an artist and a writer. She went to CCSC Central and got her master's in education. And she was an English major in college, but her passion was art and writing. But she had to make a living. My dad was also, I mean, he was a typewriter man, but they just needed some extra. So she really sacrificed a lot in terms of becoming an artist and a writer. And she was very good at them. And she exhibited her art right down the road at the Lyme Art Association. And she had a play produced when she was young. But anyway, she used to take me and my sisters many, many Saturdays to the New Britain Museum of American Art, because we grew up in New Britain. In the winter, we'd go there. And then in the summer, we'd go to the Florence Griswold House. It wasn't a museum at that time. And she would also take us out. She would paint en plein air. You know, we'd go to the marsh or we'd go down to the beach. She'd set up her easel and we'd be crabbing or playing in the water and she'd be painting. And so it was really like part of our our lives. You know, it was just very much part of the fabric of our family's lives. And so even though I'm not an artist at all, both my sisters are. They're very good. One of my nieces is actually the assistant curator at the Mystic Museum of Art. So it's carried on. And even though I can't do it, I appreciate it and love it. And one of my favorite artists is named Lyndon Frederick. He paints in Maine. He's really brilliant. And if you look up his art, every single painting is a narrative. I, I just get lost in his work. One of the quotes that I wrote down from last night is, there are head paintings and soul paintings. Oh, I don't remember saying that. <laughs> I love how you're oohing and aahing at your own words. I'm like, gosh, that's true. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's something to really think about. And it made me wonder the next time I go to an art gallery, I'm going to try and have that in mind and just yeah. and see where it takes my thoughts. And, and your heart, because that's what I think it is for me, is like I feel art. You know, mm-hmm. I really feel it. You know, some things I don't feel, and it's more analytical, or it's just interesting. But some things, they really get into me. But Lyndon, it turns out that quite a few writers collect his work, probably because every painting is a story. And so his gallery in New York, the Forum Gallery, had this incredible thing. One of his exhibitions was called Night Stories, because he paints nocturnes almost always at night. And There were 15 paintings, and he invited 15 writers to contribute a short story to what became a book. And I'll have to give you a copy because it's really, you wouldn't believe the authors who were in it. I mean, Anthony Doerr, Tess Gerritsen, Ann Patchett, just so many people I love, Ted Talley, Lawrence Kasdan, just fantastic. And as a gift to us, he gave us each a study of one of the larger paintings that ended up being in the exhibition. So did you leave your name out? Does that mean you were a contributor (laughs) also? Yes, I was. I was a contributor as well. That's fantastic. We'll put that in the show notes. I'm going to push back. I was waiting for Chris to do it first, but I'm going to push back and say you are an artist. An Emily Dickinson poem plays a part in Last Night, a very important part. And I think that all sorts of art informs itself. A lot of painting is referred to in this book because there's a character that's a painter mm-hmm. and then a returning character that 
runs a gallery, right. which is completely the- based on the Cooley Gallery right oh, here. Oh, okay. Good to know. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to say that you oh. are an amazing artist. Yeah. There are different kinds. Thank, thank you, Emily. <laughs> I mean, I feel that about my idols, musicians, actors, writers, but I guess I don't necessarily feel it for myself, but I really appreciate hearing that. Mm-hmm. And probably the reason I don't feel it for myself is that it's not visual art, mm-hmm. but thank you. I appreciate that. Well, so since art does inform so much of your entire life, when you're writing a story, are you visualizing everything or do the words just come to you? A little bit of both, but I always feel really immersed in the scene that I'm writing about. So I think I really feel it and I do see it. Just for an example, with last night, I spend a lot of time in Watch Hill at the Ocean House. And so I felt it like I knew it so well that I was able to describe things and feel as if I was right there. And certainly the beach and the beach path where some of this takes place. You know, in Providence, too, I've lived in Providence. And so that was easy to feel like I was there. Yeah, the hotel, um, the Ocean House is a luxury hotel in Rhode Island. And that's what we're talking about where last night takes place. And it's really a character in the novel. I've never had the good fortune to go in it. I'm hoping to do that soon. But I felt like I was there when I was reading it. And I really appreciated that. And also, I think what makes your writing come alive is the dialogue. Mm-hmm. Such great dialogue. And that, I think, was an impressive feat with Cece, who is six years old. Because, Chris, I think sometimes that's where the children characters get lost for me. It's like, oh, a kid wouldn't say that, you know, <laughs> or whatever. But she was so true to what a six-year-old thinks and speaks. When you write your dialogue, do you read it aloud? I do sometimes. I don't think I always did. But I find myself reading a lot of what I write aloud even as I'm writing it, the way fiction sounds is so important. When I do a talk, I actually often do not read. I don't really know why. I love to go to readings. But I just think that even though, obviously, there are audio books, and I really very much like the audio of last night. I love the um, artists who narrated it. But even sitting in your chair, reading a book, holding it in your hand, you hear all of it in your head, you know, not just the dialogue, but the way something's described or feelings. And so, yeah, I do more often than I used to. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. We've hit upon two different things. You're living in different places and then also how you write. And so one of the questions we have is kind of a two-parter because in, in the prior interview we had with you, you mentioned that you'd lived in New York city, you've lived in Paris Providence. And so the first part of this question is, does it take a while to be in a place for you that to be able to then ease into the writing? Or are you the kind of person who you get into the hotel room and you sit <laughs> down and write right away? Maybe a little bit of both, but it's true. I, I mean, I'm born and raised in Connecticut, and I've ended up back here, but I lived in Washington, D.C. I lived in Malibu. You know, when I go to a place and I fall in love with it, I immediately want to live there. (laughs) And it's not very wise because sometimes I'll do that. And then I'm like, wait a minute. (laughs) You know, it's so many people have said, maybe you should just rent for us. (laughs) Or maybe just stay in a hotel for a couple of weeks. And luckily, I love staying in a hotel. So that's the easy part. But I do tend to write about something right away. 
because I think I feel immersed, and it's usually someplace I love. I mean, I don't think I've ever really written about a place that I've had serious problems with. Mm. You know, I'm very romantic about places and setting. I think that comes through, you know, even in, in uh, the thrillers where they're not romances by any means, you know, but there's a feeling about a place, you know, and about people, people you love. And I think that's so much about setting, you know, that it's almost like I fall in love with a person, mm. <laughs> you know, yeah. but then I love them and leave them. So. <laughs> That's great. You know, that's one of the things, you know, people sometimes have romantic fantasies of I'm going to move here and write and do this. And then they realize like, oh, my gosh, it took me forever to get settled and psychologically at ease to be able to get back into my work. So it's great to hear your response to that. I mean, I find it interesting, too, to think about that. But I think because I need to be writing. So what else am I going to do? You know, it's... um I sit down at the desk and I start to write, but you're right about moving and getting settled, especially because I'd have four cats. And so taking them where I go can yeah. be, you know, I don't do it as much as I used to, but I really used to take them everywhere. My understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, is that a lot of last night was actually written while you were staying at the Ocean House. Is that true? It is true. So do you find that it's almost the opposite of what Chris is asking too, is that by removing yourself from your home and just going to some place without the same home distractions, can you jump in and write a little bit easier? I don't know about easier, but it's certainly comfortable and very nice, and it begins to feel like home because I go there a lot. One thing I loved about living in New York was I lived in an apartment, and you know I'd walk in and there'd be a doorman and someone behind the desk, and so writing can be a little lonely, mm. and it's solitude, and. I get very into that. I can go days without leaving my house or leaving my room at the ocean house. But it's so nice to be able to just go downstairs and just see somebody, you know, and not have to necessarily sit down and have dinner. You want to go right back up and write. But there's like a feeling of being cared for and being community. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's probably the one thing I really do miss about New York is that ability. And, you know, everyone thinks, oh, it's hustle bustle and it's all the great masses, but it's very easy to be alone in New York and to be entertained and to feel like you're part of something bigger. Yeah. yeah, you know? yeah. I love that. I want to say you definitely made the staff at the Ocean House seem very friendly in this novel. I really liked that part of it. They really are. That is a big part of it. You know, it's like a family. Yeah. It really is. And I am grateful to them because they did inspire, they inspired the book, and I feel loved by them, you know, and I feel like I love them too. In fact, they joke about the fact that they're going to name the room I stay in, the Lewin Rice Room. That's great. I love that. Well, you heard it here, folks. You can call the Ocean House and request that room if she's not staying there. Right, yeah. So part two of the question about writing is, can you talk a little bit about your writing process and the tools that you use? Because we do have writers who listen to the podcast, and everybody's always interested in learning how somebody else does their flow. Yeah, I, I am always interested in t- hearing how people do it. I have like a kind of talismanic need to get started first thing in the morning. And I'm a big believer in how sleep and dreams are a very big part of writing. Because say that the novel has already been started. I wake up in the morning, I have a thing where I don't speak 
until after I've been writing for a while. And it's like a routine. I hit the coffee, sit down at the desk, you know, just go straight into what I'd been writing the day before. And because I really do feel like sleep is so important because you're working stuff out and you're unconscious. And so sometimes I'll finish a chapter the night before and I'll be ready to start the next chapter the next morning and I'll know just what to do because somehow it's been worked on. As far as like starting a novel goes, you know, I do have a character that I always begin with. This is really weird, but <laughs> it's important to me that the first sentence that I write of the new novel doesn't change. It sets the tone for me. And I mean, I think it's probably true that for all the all the books that the first sentence has stayed the same all through. Should we read it? <laughs> oh, it, <laughs> it caught me. Oh, did the it? first sentence of this book caught me. Chapter one, this is the first sentence of the last night. The path to the beach was deep with snow. <laughs> I was like, okay, take me. Take me down that path. <laughs> it's not the scene from my, in my mind. And, it, and it's not necessarily that the first sentence is a work of art. It's more like, to me, yeah. it sets the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, that yeah. path is incredibly important through the yeah. whole novel. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Do you mind talking about how, like, do you use a computer, notebook? I, I do now use a laptop. I don't have a desktop computer. But, you know, when I first started writing, my first novel was Angels All Over Town. Actually, my first novel <laughs> was called Favored Daughters. And the reason you never heard of it was that it wasn't ever published. But I wrote it I wrote it on a typewriter. And like I mentioned, my dad was a typewriter man. He sold typewriters and repaired them. And so it was the one he'd given me, I think I had it since fourth grade. So it was kind of a, it was like a little bit, you know, the type wasn't perfect. It was a little crooked. So I wrote the whole thing and it got me my agent, who I still have, Andrea Cirillo, and she submitted it everywhere and it was rejected everywhere. But it came back with good notes, like, you know, try us again. So the next novel was... Angel all over town, which was basically favored daughters, but not as boring. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, I typed that one too on the Olympia typewriter. And when I was going to submit it, it's like it looked messy, you know. So I went to a typing studio in New York City, $9 a day for an IBM Selectric for the whole day. And I didn't have that much money. So I wanted to do the whole thing in five days. And I did, you know, and it got accepted. So that was good. So for years, I wrote on that old Olympia. So that was Angel of All Over Town. The next novel was Crazy in Love. And I remember the revision on Angels All Over Town, having to retype it. It was very hard to keep track of when I made changes. So I thought it was kind of the beginning of the laptop era. And I was in Brussels, <laughs> driving down Avenue Louise, I think it was, and there was a, an IBM store on the right, and it said laptop computer. I mean, it said it in French, but pulled over, bought this computer, went back to where I was staying and wrote Crazy in Love. And trying to figure out the computer was yeah. horrible. <laughs> it was so hard. And, and I love paper. I just loved like rolling the paper into the typewriter, typing it, pulling it out, hearing that sh- <laughs> when you take it out of the typewriter. And the computer had like a flip up screen that wasn't at all like the way screens are now. It was really murky gray. 
and it had just this really hard to read type. And I was so upset. At least could I make it like a white background with black letters like a typewriter? So eventually got used to it. And one time I missed saving it properly and lost an entire day's work, a whole chapter. And I remember I was swearing. I was so upset. But I just sat down and recreated it the best I could. So that was kind of my introduction to computers. And it made life a lot easier as far as revision goes. I also love writing on yellow legal pads. So at a certain point in a story, it somehow is easier for me to almost go into a trance and write on a legal pad. Mm, nice. Do you have a favorite pen? I'm looking to see if you guys have the same kind. But, um, you know, I like the gel pen. It's oh, the G The G-150. Yeah. And, and the yeah. Pilot. The yeah. Pilot, yeah. pilot G-2. Yeah. 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 Oh, G-2. Yeah. I like yeah. those. I like yeah. those, too. I mean, I yeah. have a couple of fountain pens, but I just like a good ballpoint yeah. pen. Yeah. <laughs> those are so reliable. Yeah. yeah. Are. And I like blue. Okay. And I used to always love the fine point, but lately I've been going medium point. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Has your handwriting changed over time? It has. And I really resent that. (laughs) (laughs) Because I think it has to do with having to sign your name when you check out now. And it's like, it used to be that only doctors had that kind of signature. (laughs) And now I, you know, I love handwriting. I'm here to tell you doctors and bookkeepers, because as a bookkeeper, I've signed so many checks. And I had someone sometime where I was just signing something say, are you a doctor? And I said, no, I'm a bookkeeper, but I've probably signed my name as many times. So So, um, when you're working on that legal pad with your pen, I'm wondering if you're working out like the potting in last night was pretty amazing mm. <laughs> with all the different characters. Are you working things like that out? I've never plotted anything in my life. So I'm glad you said that. I mean, I think I have a convoluted way of thinking sometimes, and especially when there is a crime or something hard to understand. And maybe because I've read so many thrillers and read so many mysteries that I guess I feel like I feel the beats of the story. It's more when I'm trying to get into a certain character, a a moment in the character's life Mm. that might be really difficult to immediately feel. So it's mostly that. And sometimes it's language, too. You know, it's when I want something to sound a certain way or when I feel like it needs to sound a certain way. Yeah. Last night, Chris and I were talking about this on our drive here today. It's an unusual story because... You kind of know, at least you think you know, who committed the murder very early in the story. Oh, who do you think? (laughs) There's so much. There's so much, though. Like you just. Well, well, I mean, the actual pulling of the trigger. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. But then as we were talking about it, Chris was like, well, but when do you really know? And so then we both decided we probably should read it again. (laughs) I had so many moments of thinking like, oh, oh, okay, I see. A couple pages more. Mm, no. So it was that kind of, I can't believe that you didn't plot that out somehow because it really did keep me guessing, both of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was surprised at who, who done it. <laughs> but I think it's partly because murder is just so hard to fathom. Mm-hmm. You know, how can a person kill someone else? Like what drives them to that? Not to give anything away, I'd say it's more from Last Day, my novel Last Day, but when you love somebody, you have really loved them, you know, and had a relationship with them. And you get to a point or the character gets to a point where 
murder seems to make sense. And even as much as I've read it and even lived it through a murder that affected me, I still can't get my mind around it at all. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I I don't know if you're following the horrible story of Jennifer Dulos's murder. She's from Connecticut, and she was, at least, I mean, the case is going on, but she was mother of five and murdered by her husband. Mm-hmm. And in this trial, um, right now, they're showing some of the evidence and among the things is a shirt she was wearing the day she was murdered, and it's completely covered with blood. Mm-hmm. So you find yourself thinking, like, what did she go through? Mm-hmm. Like, what was it like to see her soon-to-be ex-husband? I mean, they were in a divorce, but see him attacking her, you mm-hmm. know? And that haunts me. I mean, mm-hmm. not not just that story, but particularly that story now, but, you know, in other cases. You mm-hmm. know, what could make a person do that yeah rage and yeah all sorts of things and but or planning i mean that's the part that's more Mm -hmm. awful like Mm -hmm. is when somebody has really plotted it out and you know it's premeditated Mm -hmm. when i wrote last day it was very much based on this real life murder that took place in connecticut that there was a connection with my family and you know, the husband had killed his wife and staged, you know, staged a scene that made it look like a sexual assault. And I had thought to myself, like, what, you know, what would drive a person to do that? And I went to the trial and I was sitting there and I kind of came to believe that there's an X factor. You know, there's something, not everybody could, you know, I mean, obviously not everybody could be driven to it. But I was thinking when I first got there, like, what could make a quote-unquote normal person do that. And I kind of came to believe that there was something very different, very wrong with a person who could kill. Mm. And now I'm not so sure again. Yeah. It's it's really a terrible thing to contemplate, but... Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. like crimes of passion. Mm-hmm. Right, or desperation yeah. or revenge. Mm-hmm. I mean, really terrible emotions yeah. that can drive a person to it, but still... It just feels like the the leap is just so much. Mm-hmm. So that's why writing last night, I think it didn't make sense to me that the characters I thought had done it. No, it wasn't them. Yeah. It was yeah. somebody else. <laughs> All right, y'all, you have to read yes, it. You just have to, I have to say that last day. So I think the book's in order. These thrillers are last day, then the shadow box, and last night, yeah. correct? Yes. Last day, I was telling Chris this also on the drive up here, the opening scene in Last Day was so disturbing. I almost couldn't read it, but I'm so glad I did. It's a fantastic book. You really paint murder scenes that are very realistic and also does really bring to the forefront the idea of like, can you ever know a person? What are people capable of? Things like that. And I think Last Night is a perfect example. I think Ted Hughes used a phrase once that has stuck with me, the dark unknowability of another person. Mm -hmm. And I mean, one thing for sure is that everybody has secrets and has a part of their lives that nobody knows about. How dark it is is not always as much as it is in these books, but that's something that I think about sometimes. The opening of Last Day is very much based on what I was just telling you, the murder that took place in East Lyme, right down the road from here. Yeah. And that's the other thing. It's like to have 
what seems like a really comfortable life and to see from the outside it's so pretty and that's what really you know gets me that makes me kind of wonder what's happening under the roof yeah it's a juxtaposition right yeah Yeah. it really is i you know when i um i did a citizens police academy and you know they have a police blotter that the newspaper prints but there are some things that are not released to protect the identity of prominent people really and you know that happens everywhere i think That is something that kind of skews our understanding of murder and violence in this country. It's almost like domestic abuse. Like, Mm -hmm. the wealthier you are, the more you can hide things. Right. Um, There's a a show on, uh, it's on FX, but I watched it on Hulu. It's called The Feud, and it's Mm -hmm. the second season of it. And I believe it's Truman Capote versus the Swans. And the Swans were the ladies who lunch in New York that were very socially prominent and I watched two episodes this week and in it they refer to Anne Woodward who did you ever read Dominic Dunn's book The Two Misses Grenfell gosh I'm going to get it wrong and he's a relative of mine (laughs) (laughs) and it's a wonderful book but it's Two Misses The Two Misses Grenville yeah in real life I mean it goes to what you were just saying Chris but in real life there was a woman Anne Woodward who shot her husband Billy Woodward and claimed that it was was a prowler. The evidence showed that that isn't what happened, that she had, you know, murdered him in the shower, but that the police, just what you were saying, helped cover it up because she was from such a prominent family. And his mother actually helped the police cover it up because she didn't want the scandal to affect the children. But it was just, you know, so well done in this episode. And it just reminds me exactly what you said. And Truman is talking to some of the ladies and he's saying, this is the reality of your world. You can get away with things like that, whereas other people, you know, could never. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I also think that it does often have to do with mental health issues as well, which is something that we're talking about more in this country now, but historically have not. That does not come to play in this book. But I think that often is the case with murders. I think so, too. And actually, on that note, you know, I talk really openly about issues that I've had with mental health. And, you know, I was depressed as a young person, and it's continued throughout my life. And I went to the hospital in McLean, which is sort of kind of known for writers. James Taylor was there, not when I was there, Anne Sexton, Sylvia Plath, Robert Lowell, and they really do have an appreciation for sensitive people, not just writers, but, and they have a program called Deconstructing Stigma that I took part in that I'm very proud of. People from all walks of life tell their story and are photographed. And then McLean, I'm not sure if they do it with everybody, but they put like these gigantic photos of us in the concourse at Logan Airport with our story. The idea is that people are vulnerable when they travel, and maybe it's a time they can really feel their own feelings and their own concerns about their mental health, and they're walking through the concourse, and they see people just like them, you know, who have faced whatever it is. In my case, it was depression, but there's PTSD and, you know, all kinds of of things. Um, You know, I just, I think it's really good that we're talking about it. Yeah, that's a great program. Yeah, it is. There is some psychiatry mentioned in this book and last night as emily said it's like the the murder doesn't necessarily involve mental health some of the great quotes that i i wrote down it's like 
Um, Hadley says at one point, art and rage, art and identity. She wasn't sure where one ended and the other began. Another character says, anger is just a cover-up for sorrow. Fury is less painful to feel than grief or sadness. And then this gets me to the quote where Maddie, who's the artist, a psychiatrist, had published an article about how her images have entered the common psyche of the culture. And you mentioned a very specific group, Cluster B. Patients with Cluster B diagnoses grew angry when Maddie didn't respond to their emails, phone calls, and letters. And I thought that was a really specific thing, the Cluster B. And I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit, if you're comfortable. So I'm not. I'm definitely not an expert, and I don't want to say anything that somebody might feel I've gotten it wrong, but my understanding of it is that there's some personality disorders in cluster B that make it difficult for the person suffering to have healthy relationships. And, you know, a lot of times I'll say a stalker might have one of those disorders or somebody who becomes obsessed, very obsessive. And when I was writing about Maddie and the fact that she does do these images that have entered the public consciousness and It's one of those things where she's so good, but she's become almost too popular for how good she is. And her stuff is on like the mugs, you know, at the airport or, you know, on shower curtains that are in college dorms and stuff like that. And so people often will think she's communicating directly with them. She gets them so completely. And so if they try to contact her and she doesn't respond as a friend or as a, you know, somebody who's like intimate they can become rageful, you know, and become hurt, just really hurt, you know, and, uh, you know, and so I, I, that's what I had in mind. But, yeah, thank yeah. you for that. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a thread in the novel about um, Maddie and a woman who was her friend and kind of became problematic, and I think that might be where that quote somehow came from. But, yeah, that yeah. that was true. Somebody that yeah. she, who felt she was kind of her equal and her friend, but then as Maddie's you know, became famous, and then she kind of took off, and they went in different directions. But this friend also really identified and felt that she was a better artist than Maddie. And so how unfair it was that Maddie had become so successful, and that that just worked on her, you know, and ate her up, really. Right. Yeah. Wow. Well, we could keep talking to Luann all day, but (laughs) um, fortunately for us, she has her book launch tonight at Bank Square Books, and we're all heading there. So if we don't stop talking to her, that event's not going to (laughs) happen. I am so psyched that the book cougars are coming to my book launch. I'm going to introduce you from the front. No, I I mean, I definitely am. I'm I'm sure that you'll have legions of fans there. (laughs) Well, it was so nice for you to take the time to talk to us. We know you don't like to talk about what you're working on, but we did want to give you an opportunity to tell us about, you have two books coming out this year. So can you tell us about the book that's coming out in, I think, September? In the fall. I think it, we think it's going to be September, but it's a young adult. It's, I think, my fourth young adult novel with Scholastic, and it's called If Anything Happens to Me. It's also suspense. It takes place in a fictional version of Old Lyme, which I always call Black Hall. And again, it's about sisters. And, you know, so many of my books are about sisters. I don't set out for them to be, but they just are. Right on. Well, we can't wait for that one as well. Thank you so much for your time, Luann. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. 
We'll be back again with another episode in two weeks. Until then, come chat with us on social media, Goodreads, or email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. If you'd like to help support our podcast, please tell others about us, leave a review wherever you listen, and consider becoming a patron. Even a dollar a month is a big help. Learn more about that on our website, bookcougars.com, where you'll find the show notes for this and all of our past episodes. Thanks, everybody. Happy reading. This episode was edited by Pat Keogh Sound Design.